Before we get started, last week we looked at Judah. We looked at Judah means praise. Judah's mother was who? There were four mothers in the 12 tribes of Israel, and the one who had six of the, of the sons was the wife of Jacob, and her name was Leah. For some reason, I was laying in bed, I was thinking about Leah, and in Genesis chapter 29, I was thinking about where these names came from. It says that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. So Leah evidently wasn't that attractive. And it says that Jacob indeed loved Rachel more than Leah. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and that word unloved literally means hated. And because of that, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she says, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Now that catches my attention. That's why I start thinking about Leah. Leah wanted something. She wanted her husband to love her. And instead she was hated. And what she's doing here is she's having children. And listen to what happens every time she has a son. Look what she says. Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. Third time, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me. By that means she wanted a relationship with her husband that she didn't have. Because I have borne him now three sons. Therefore she named him Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and this time I will praise the Lord. And she conceived again and bore a son, and this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah, or praise. I have the feeling that Leah was a godly woman. Because it says in verse 33 that the Lord heard her. Now if the Lord heard her, what was she doing? She was praying. She was praying and she was praising, even though she was unloved by her husband. So she must have prayed about it. And you can see her heart in the names that she gave her first four sons. Now, Jacob, I don't know what you're doing here, guy. How do you keep having kids with a woman you hate? After Rachel died, something happened. Leah did dwell with her husband. She died in Genesis chapter 49, and this is what's interesting. At the end of her life, Jacob does not ask to be buried with the one that he loved at the beginning. Who does he ask to be buried with? Leah. Abraham and Sarah were buried there, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob buried Leah in the same place, and that meant that he was honoring her in, her, in, his, um, in her death. He honored her. What changed? I'd like to think that over time, Leah gained the respect of her husband, and it showed in the way he treated her at the end of his life. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case or not. It may have been just the fact that she's the one that gave him six sons and a daughter. It may have been a culture thing. I don't know. But that's one of the things when I, went, when I get to heaven. Leah is one of the people I want to meet. She was a godly woman, and she is the reason that half the sons are named what they are. 
Now, we looked at praise last week. This week, as we work through this chapter to help organize uh, our thoughts as we go here, I want you to look at the privilege of Judah. Then I want you to look at the prophet, the prophecy, the promise, the pressure of life, and then the presence of the enemy and the punishment. See that, see if you can see how that all fits, and so it'll help us organize our thoughts as we go through chapter 1. Let me read for a little bit, and then we'll get started. The vision of Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amaz, concerning two things, Judah and Jerusalem. We're looking at Judah right now. Which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up. But they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. And the whole heart is faint. From the sole of foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation, as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion, that's the term for Jerusalem, is left like a shelter in a vineyard like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. Look at verse 2. Let's look at, first of all, the privilege of Isaiah. Every one of these terms, you see what he's calling them as he goes through uh, verses 2, 3, and 4. He calls them sons. He calls them my people. He calls them Israel in verse 3. He calls them a nation, and then he calls them offspring. Every one of those terms to the Jew is a term of privilege. And let me show you. The first one, he says, sons I have reared up. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'm just going to read to you just a little bit of it. But this is something that God foretold in the song of Moses that he made them learn. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 7. Remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. What are they going to tell you? Verse 8 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man. Now, what he's talking about there is Genesis chapter 10 says, At that time there were 70 nations in the world. But he separated one out of those nations. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. And look what he says about Israel. He treats them different than everybody else. This is what he says. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Listen to what he did for him. He found them in a desert land and in the howling waste of wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for them. He guarded them as the people of his eye. That term means the little man of the eye, and it's talking about how you protect the eyes, one of the most sensitive and protected organs in the body. 
in the howling wind, which he just talked about, he protected them. This is what else he did. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that hovers over its wings, he spread its wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. This is very important to God, what he says next. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. The point of what he's saying here is that he treated Israel different than any other nation. He treated them special. Sons I have reared up. You see that word reared up? Reared means, uh, I'm sorry, brought up means to be, to raise, it's talking about raising a child, but it also means to be high above or exalted. He didn't just care for them and raise them as children. He exalted them. He elevated them and gave them peculiar honors and privileges. In Exodus 4.22 is when uh, Moses was sent to talk to Pharaoh. What was it he was supposed to say about Israel? He says, you are to be treated as the firstborn. You know what that meant to Pharaoh? He was different than anybody else. He has special honor and privileges above all else. The world was supposed to know that God treated them above all other nations. So he elevated them. Look at verse 3, what he calls them next. He calls them Israel. It's fascinating to me here. This one caught my attention because how did Israel get his name? Israel, at that time, was not named Israel. What was he named? Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Heel catcher. Okay. And what was Jacob known for? He was known for being a trickster. I don't know if that's really fair, but that's another story. He, that's what his name is. He is about to meet brother Esau as he's running from his father-in-law. He sets everything in order, and then he gets by himself, and what does he do all night? He wrestles with a man until daybreak, and what does he say? And here's the, here it is. I will not, what? Let him go until what? Until you bless me. Because of that, the Lord says, I'm going to change your name, and I'm going to change your name to Israel, which means God's fighter. And he did bless him. Now, Israel gets his name from hanging on to God, not letting go, fighting with God till he gets a blessing. And now look at verse 4. The dad gets his name, Israel, from doing that. And look what the sons do. They abandon the Lord. They despise him. And they turn away. Dad hangs on. The children walk away. Just the opposite. It couldn't be more of a contradiction. Look at the third thing he calls them. He calls them my people. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded you, so keep them. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, and it says, So keep them. For that is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all the statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They were supposed to be known throughout the world as a understanding and wise people. They were supposed to be known as God's possession. What made them 
that special? What made them wise? What made them known throughout all the world as different? It wasn't them. It was what God gave them. And what did God give them? God gave them the Old Testament. He gave them the law. That was their wisdom. That's what made them stand out. How was it supposed to work? He gives them the, the law. They study it. Their life is changed. The world sees that they're different because their laws are better than our laws. Their standard of living is different than ours. Hey, I want what they've got. But Isaiah chapter 5 says what? They did not do that. They were not known as a wise and understanding people. Isaiah chapter 5, look at verse 24. Instead of becoming wise and understanding people, verse 24 says, For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Again, an opportunity to be elevated throughout all the world, to be known as something wise and understanding, and instead they reject what would have done that for them. Listen, this is why in chapter 2, at the very beginning, it talks about that in the days to come, it says, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established, and many people will stream to Jerusalem. And why are they streaming to Jerusalem? That he may teach us, in verse 3 of chapter 2, this is why they're going, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that may we walk in his paths for the, what is coming from Zion? The law is coming forth from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And what happens when the word of the Lord is spread throughout the world? Worldwide peace. No more war. We're all going to get along. What does the world need right now more than anything? The United States right now is an asset to this world. A lot of times we're the police force. Anything goes wrong. We're one of the first countries to give help. But what is the number one thing that we can do for the world? When we were a Christian nation, we would export not economy and money and goods and aid and all that. We exported the word of God. What does the world need more than anything else? It needs the truth of God's word. What's the next thing he calls them? Verse 4, he calls them nation. Deuteronomy 4 just called them a great nation. 1 Peter 2.9 quotes them. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a what kind of nation? Holy nation. He pulls this from Exodus 19.6. They were offered an opportunity to be different than everybody else. But listen, what does he say? Verse 4, alas. What are you doing when you say alas? It means something is very wrong. What's wrong? They're not a holy nation. They are a sinful nation. They don't act differently. They don't influence the world. They let the world influence them. Their relationship and the promises of blessing that God gave them and their responsibility to God to meet the needs to a lost world, it's all ruined. Why? Because they're no longer a holy nation, they're a sinful nation. Verse 4, 
He calls them, he says, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. What's the next thing he says? Offspring of evildoers. The word is literally seed. And what he's talking about is the Abrahamic covenant. They were children of Abraham, and they were proud of that. The Jews were taught that if any Jew died and went to Sheol or Hades, that who was there at the gates of Hades? Abraham. They believed this. They believed that Abraham was sitting there, so when they died, and he finds out that, hey, you're one of my sons or grandsons, you're part of my seed, you're not going to hell. They thought just being in the line of Abraham kept them out of hell. They taught that. They believed it. Look what he says. He takes all of that away. He wipes out their source of security and pride, and he removes that idea, and he says, look at your heritage. Your heritage is not from Abraham. Your heritage is from what? Evildoers. You don't have a godly Abrahamic line. You have a sinful line. There's no security in that. So the elevated firstborn son has rebelled against him. Israel has held, that, held on to him that, and received a blessing, has now become a people that abandoned him. The people that were to be wise and understanding using God's word, they despise his word. And he says, you're now, you're not wise and understanding, you're dumber than donkeys. They don't even know your God. The nation that was to be a kingdom of priests and holy is sinful. They're just like all the nations around him. And the offspring of Abraham is now an offspring of evildoers. Look at verse 4 and look what he says three times. They have, they have, they have. They have what? They have abandoned who? The Lord. What's the Lord? That's his personal name. This is personal. Look at the next thing it says. They have despised the Holy One. That's what he is. So they despise who he is, and they really hate what he is. And then the third one, summarize it. They have turned away from him. Do you know what that says in the Hebrew? It literally says they have bestranged themselves. If you look at the, the fact that that word is reflexive in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, that word is only used throughout the rest of the Hebrew to describe an alien, a foreigner, or a non-Israelite. So you know what God is saying here? God is saying that you, Israel, have reverted back, not to my people, but to aliens. You're not my people. You're aliens and strangers, and you're just like all the other nations. You're Gentiles. Okay. Plug in here. Before we go any further, I want you to look at verses 18. And from here on, I want to try something. I want to try to do what Isaiah is doing in verses 18 through 20. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And then what he does is he repeats the covenant, that covenant that's given. He says, if you consent and obey, I'll bless you. If you refuse, I'll curse you, is basically what he's saying. That's a, we're going to talk about that here in a second. God is trying from here this point on, you see what the problem is. Their problem is they're a sinner. They're a sinful nation. And it's ruined their lives. He's trying to get their attention. Look how he's trying to get their attention. 
First thing he gets their attention with is Isaiah. What was Isaiah? He was a prophet. Look at what Isaiah is doing to them. Look at chapter 30. Turn to chapter 30 and look at verse... Look at verse 9. You want to know what kind of effect that Isaiah the prophet was having on this nation. God sends them a very good prophet. And look at what Isaiah does to them. <clears throat> verse 9, it says, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Who's given them that instruction? Isaiah. Who says to the seers, you must now see, not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. This is the people talking back to Isaiah. I don't want to hear what you got to say, Isaiah. I don't want to hear that judgment is coming. I want to hear good things. Tell me everything's going to be all right. Now, another thing that's reinforcing this is pretty soon we're going to see that the land was full of what? In the next chapter, soothsayers. What are soothsayers? Fortune tellers. Why were they listening to these fortune tellers? Because these fortune tellers were telling them their future, and they were telling them what they wanted to hear. Oh, it's going to be okay, guys. Egypt's going to come help. Assyria's not going to take. Babylon's not coming. We're stronger and better than that. Don't let Isaiah fool you. We're okay. It was all a lie, but that's what the people wanted to hear. And listen to verse 11. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about who? The Holy One of Israel. So what was Isaiah pounding into him? He was pounding into him Isaiah 6. Once he saw the Holy One of Israel, he never stopped talking about it, and he was wearing them out. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Stop talking about him. Tell us what we want to hear. Isaiah was doing his job. God sent them the prophet to tell them about the Holy One of Israel. Now, look at verse 2. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Stop right there. Now, you guys did your homework assignments, right? You read the book of Deuteronomy, right? So you know where we're going here because you've seen this. You didn't see it just once. You saw it four times in the book of Deuteronomy, right? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at what he was saying when he used that phrase. Three times when he uses that phrase, he was giving them a prophecy. They knew the book of Deuteronomy, right? They should have. They were going to church every Sunday. Okay, was anybody explaining to them? Do you remember what the book of Deuteronomy says? They should have known something. Not only that, their national anthem... Do you know what their national anthem is? It's Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Look at what they sing. But first, look at verse first time this is used. The first time this phrase, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Look at verses 25, chapter 4, 25 to 31. <clears throat> when you become the father of children and of children's children and have remained remain long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. There it is. That you will surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. And you will not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. 
The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor eat nor smell. Now, what Moses is doing is he's talking to them before they enter the land of Palestine. And he's telling them before they actually get into the land, this is what you're going to do. I already know what you're going to do. God is telling me and I'm telling you, this is what you're going to do as soon as you get in there. Now, they were 40 years in the wilderness. So that puts this time about 1405 B.C. Isaiah is Isaiah, where we're at in chapter one deals with the nation from roughly 767 to 686. So, and then Israel is driven, uh, driven away in 722. It no longer exists as a nation. So that comes out. I added it up and subtracted or did something. I come up with 683 years. That's how long they were in the land. Back up 680 something years. God told them what they're going to do before they did it. Deuteronomy chapter 31, 29, it says, Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call, here it is again, the heavens and the earth to witness against them. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is what he taught them to sing. This is their national anthem, chapter 32. And look how it starts in verse 1. Here, is, here it is again. That phrase, give ears, O heaven, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Okay? And then he teaches them a song to sing. And he, if you back up, he makes them memorize it before they go into it. Now, this is a long song. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but he made them memorize this whole song, and he made them sing it. Listen to what it says. It tells them exactly what they're going to do. You back up to chapter 31. Look at verses 16 and 17. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of land into the midst of which they are going, and they will forsake me, and they will break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face with them, and they will be consumed. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils will come upon us? So he's telling them. And then just work your way through here. I don't have time. I wish I did. But when you read Deuteronomy chapter 32, it is identical. It's the same thing as what we're reading right now. All those verses of what they're doing and what God is doing to them. It's exactly right here in Deuteronomy, prophesied almost seven years before it happens. He tells them what they're going to do and what he's going to do. And they know that. It's their national anthem. So they're going around singing, we're going to forsake God. We're going to worship demons. We're going to run away from God, and God is going to scatter us through the nations. They sing that. And then they don't learn from it. What do they do? They do it. Just like God said they were going to do. So God tried to warn them. He tried to tell them. He sent them Isaiah. He's given them Moses. They should have known. Verse 2 is the last time when it quotes Isaiah. I'm sorry, it quotes Deuteronomy. Listen to it. This is the fourth time in Deuteronomy. Actually, I'm backing up one to come up with four. But Deuteronomy, let me read it to you. 
Another time where it makes up four times he says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you, and here's the promise. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. God, just before this, before he gave them that song, he told them, I'm going to give you a promise. If you will obey my covenant, I am making you a promise. I will not bring any of this stuff on you. I will give you life and I will bless you. But if you don't, if you disobey I'm promising you, I will curse you. So when you read in Isaiah chapter 1, and it says, I'm calling witness, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. They should have remembered those first four times in Deuteronomy when they were prophesied and when they were promised what was going to happen. Look at verse 4. This one I've been thinking about all week. And it says, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. Weighed down with iniquity. If I plugged in the word stress, I think that would be the modern translation of what he's talking about here. The stress of living a sinful life. I thought for a minute, you know, I need to explain what that means. And that, you know what? I don't think I need to explain that. I think we all know what he's talking about. I have done things in my life where I have felt the weight of God's hand against me. I have done things, and I go, did I really do that? And the guilt and the shame that I felt was heavy. I was miserable. I was reading this week in my, uh, in my devotion, Psalm 38. He is describing in the first 10 verses what he felt when he sinned against God. Listen to three of them. Your hand is pressed down on me. Then he says, as a burden, they weigh too much for me. And then a third thing he says, I was benumbed and badly crushed. Now, I was thinking about this verse, and we were running by a liquor store in Wichita, and there's a sign up there, and it goes, try the rum diet, lose three days. And it took me a few seconds, and I figured out what he was talking about. And I go, you know what? I have heard that, talking with friends at work and people I know. And I ask them, what are you going to do this weekend? They go, well, I'm going to go get wasted. Or I'm going to go smoke something. And I ask, why do you do that? I just want to... And I hear different versions of, I'm looking for an escape. I just want to get away from that weight and from the stress of life. I want to tell you something. When I sinned, I had a way to get rid of that weight. As a Christian, I have a God who I can go to and ask for forgiveness, and I have a Savior who took that weight of sin, and he took my shame, and he bore it for me. And I can give it to him, and I can repent. I don't want to do that again, and God takes it away. Sinner, you don't have that. Now, you might have a few ways, and everybody has a different way of doing it, of escaping from that weight of sin for a while. But listen, there is no escape from the weight that's coming. Romans 2.9 says that for those who are selfishly ambitious and obey unrighteousness, distress 
is coming. It says wrath and distress, depends which version. But that word in the Greek is philipsis. Do you know what philipsis is? It's intense pressure. He's describing hell. The word is used for what they used to do to grapes. When they would take the grapes and they would put them in and they would crush them to make wine. They would flipsis, the grapes. They would crush them. It's also used to describe in uh, a farmer when he was, uh, had wheat, he would harvest it and he would take it and he wanted to separate <clears throat> the chaff from the grain. He would take a very heavy instrument and he would put sharp objects and then he would roll it or push it, move it against that pile of wheat. And what it would do is that it would crush it and it would separate the two. And then when you throw it up, it would blow the chaff, the, 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 chaff, the stuff he didn't want away. Uh, Psalm 23 talks about it. It talks about the blessings I have as a Christian. You have as a Christian what? A Savior who's going to lead us beside what? Still waters. I have someone who's going to restore my soul. I have someone who's going to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, so I don't need to be afraid. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Listen, one of the things, my lost friend, that you're going to experience in hell is intense pressure. You're going to feel a crushing weight of God's wrath and listen, there's no alcohol, there's nothing to smoke, there's no medicine, there's no meditation, there's no counseling, there is no escape from the intense pressure that you're going to feel when you're in hell. You know, God is trying to tell this nation something here. He's trying to tell them from not just the prophet, not just from the word of God that he's tried to explain it to them, but from the very laws that he's written into nature of what happens when you sin. Don't you realize that what you're feeling is because of your sin, what you're experiencing? Do you realize that there's no escape from that and that's just the beginning? Are you aware of that? Shouldn't that tell you that And don't you want to live another way, a better way? You know, one of the things that I see here is a failure to repent. It, it, it amazes me. Revelation makes a point in chapter 9. It says that after the sixth trumpet judgment, another third, there's already been a bunch of the world has been destroyed and billions have literally died. Another third of mankind dies. And what does it say? And it says it twice in Revelation chapter 9. It says, they will not repent from the works of their hands. Judah would not repent from all that stress and everything that's going on in their lives. They refuse to repent. At the end of the world, when things get super, super bad, and God gives them a little bit of taste of hell, what it's going to be like, they still refuse to repent. I used to think, and I may have taught this, and I've changed my mind about something. Sinner, I don't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to go to hell. If you go to hell, you chose to go to hell. Okay, I read where people are walking around saying, I can't serve a God who sends people to hell. Well, God provided a way so that you didn't have to go to hell. He paid a very, very heavy price so that you would have the option of not going to hell. If you go to hell, you ignored God's option. 
He took hell for you so that you didn't have to go to hell, but you chose to go to hell. Why? Because you love your sins more than you love God. Luke chapter 16 tells the story of the rich man in hell, and this story is why I don't believe, I don't think hell would change your mind. If I could take you and dunk you in hell for a while, would it change you? I don't think so. Because the rich man and Lazarus, look at what they were. He is exalted. He is as low as you can go. You cannot have a more extreme contrast in this life. But what happens when death comes? They both die, and what happens to Lazarus? It says he is where? He is in Abraham's bosom. For the Jew, you know what it is in the Jewish mind? You could not be in a higher exalted place than in Abraham's bosom. Now they've traded places. This is the great reversal that comes in eternity. And where is the rich man? He's gone from being super exalted, super luxuriously rich, to what? He's in hell. He's lifting up his eyes in Hades and he's in torment. And he asks two questions. First one, he asks for a drop of water. The second thing is he says, would you send, what does he do? Send Lazarus. Stop there for a second. Who does he think he's talking to? You know what? I don't see any change in him. There's no change in the rich man. He still thinks he's somebody. He hasn't repented. He hasn't figured out that, hey, Lazarus is, and you're something else now. He never figured it out. And then listen to this. This is important. Listen to the last thing that Abraham tells him. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. What's he saying? He's saying if someone who went to hell, came out of hell, and went and preached to everybody, the point that the rich man is making, they would listen. They would get saved. And what does Abraham say? Nope. Nope. You know what? Somebody did go to hell, come back, and preach. Who was it? Jesus. Did they believe him then? Nope. Sinners still rejected the message. What is it? What is it and only one thing in this world that will change the heart of a lost man? There's only one thing. It's Moses and the prophets. What is it? There's only one thing that will break and bring a man to repentance. It's this word. Only this word. What you do with this word affects your eternity. If I want to help you, or if you want to help a lost person, what do you, they need? They need this. They need the word of God to be saved. That is the only thing that will lead a man to repentance. Okay, I'm going to finish with this. I don't think dunking you in hell is going to help you or bring you to repentance. Only God can do that through his word. But sinner, do you, realize, do you realize what you've lost? Do you realize the difference between your world and the world of a believer? I was thinking about something. We uh, have been fostering for a number of years, and one of the things that we ran into is we would, have, we would take care of kids for short periods of time. And one of the things that uh, 
I learned is that you would have kids come from a world who had never lived in a world where they were fed, had clean sheets and clean clothes, they were speaking kindly to, and they were treated well. They come from destitute and needy and sometimes abused, neglected backgrounds, and they come into a world that Marilyn in our home would give us, and they were treated well. And sometimes they would have to go back. And I always would wonder, how much did I really help them? Because before that, they didn't know. I've been in situations where I didn't know how bad I had it until I had this. And I realized, oh. And I wonder if that's what happens to the kids. Sinner, does that apply to you? All you know is stress. All you knew is pain. And you don't know that there is a better way. I wish I could bring you into the believer's world. And you could see what you're missing. You're missing so much. I have a master who loves me. You serve a master who hates you and wants to send you to hell with him. When trouble comes, I have the promises of God's word. It says in Romans chapter 8 that everything I go through, there is a purpose for it. God will work everything, everything, even the hard times, to my good. I serve a God who talks to me, and I can talk to him, and I can believe what he says. I can trust him. You live in a world manipulated by a liar and deceiver. Sometimes I want to put on some of your graves, killed by a lie. Went to hell believing a lie. That's what destroyed you. If you lose someone you love, you grieve a whole lot worse than I do because your loss is permanent. My loss in many situations is temporary. I didn't lose them. I just lost a little time, and I'll have all eternity to make it up. You can't say that. I find peace. I have peace. It's available to me if I go find it. Later on in this book, he's going to say, Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend. There it is again. What is it that I need? I need this book. And when I get in trouble, I can find it. Where? In this book. This book, Christian, is sufficient, listen, for all your needs. I have hope. I have a future. I have a future of fun and rest. You have despair. You have no hope. I have a good father. If I get in trouble and I have a problem, I have a need. Matthew tells me that I have a father who gives good gifts. And I can tell you from experience, it works. I have a God who answers my prayers. I have a future of light. You have a future of absolute darkness. I have a future of abounding water in abundance. You're not going to eat or drink anything when you get to hell. I'm going to be eating and drinking the best that this world ever has, and Jesus Christ is going to serve it to me. Yes, that's one of my favorites. I have life. I have joy. I am looking forward to my future. You know one thing, I'm going to end with this, and you may think this is dumb, 
But you know one of the things I'm looking forward to? And you know what? I cannot give you a Bible verse for this one. But you know one of the things I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to be able to talk to you in a very different way than I talk to you right now. That sounds stupid, but I'm sorry. I listen to your conversations and the way we talk, and sometimes it's just a lot of work. It is, okay? Because you listen, okay, I, we talk, oh, wait a minute, I can't say that. They might think this, or wait a minute, that's a secret, I can't say that. And if I say that, she'll know I know her secret, so I can't say that, okay. It, it's just a lot of work talking to you guys, okay? You know what, and some of you guys are, sensitive now listen listen the day is coming and i'm looking forward to this when i can talk to you guys and i can listen to you i can tell you the truth okay i'm going to say what i really think you know what it's going to be easy guys it's going to be so much fun when we get to heaven the way we relate to each other the things that are going to happen i find it so much easier now to pray thy kingdom come i want to go home Listen, sinner, hear the word of the God. He's trying to get your attention. He sent his son to die for you. You don't know what you're missing. If you only knew, hell is nothing. You get nothing in hell. I get everything when I get home.